you know, um, I, I wrote a book called Cloak of the Illuminati in the year 2002. And that was my first kind of foray into the whole transhuman area. And I, I remember back then I was uh, especially fired up my, my real interest in, in, in this light body phenomena. Um, and again, with the Anunnaki, as I started to see that they, the, the, the Anunnaki were called the shining ones. And one reason why was because they possessed a transmittable cloak or garment. Sitchin didn't know about this. This word was the, uh, that refers to this garment was not really dug up by uh, Sumerian scholars until the early 2000s. And, and the word uh, is malamu. It's a Sumerian word that means radiance, luminosity, shining, and supernatural power. And it's a term that the Sumerians applied to the Anunnaki to a cloak or garment that they wore the Malamu that gave them the made gave them their their shining luminosity and the thing was is that this this cloak or garment could be transmitted to a human so an Anunnaki could provide this cloak or garment to a human and a human that could become an Anunnaki a shining one with luminosity radiance and and superpowers like the, the the Anunnaki which is why they were called the mighty ones and I, as I'm tracking this, I'm, I'm noticing there's a whole uh, continuous line of deities and even humans that acquired this, this garment. Enoch is, is one, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Mary Magdalene. They all have references to acquiring this miracle garment. And it, it, first part of 2002, as I'm finishing this book and, and talking about this garment, here comes this Department of Commerce report, U.S. Department of Commerce. They, they took the, uh, all the, the big tech companies that were in existence back then. It was Apple, Microsoft, uh, people like that, and said, some of you are working with bits or computer science. Some of you are working with atoms or nanotechnology. Some of you are working with neurons or neuroscience. And some of you are working with genes or genetics. And what we want to do is we want to merge all four of those technologies into a single seamless technology aimed at the human skin in order to introduce a new golden age and also a, a new type of human being. And when I was talking about that back in 2002, I'd be like out coast to coast or something and people would literally write to me saying, you're nuts. This will never happen. You will never see humans merge with technology. You know, David Icke is talking about people putting chips in their brain. You're talking about them replacing our whole skin and breaking the skin barrier and turning us into robots. And I said, yeah, that, that's the plan. That, and they plan to do this by 2035. And I remember back in 2002, hey, at least we got another 33 years or so before this is gonna happen. But, but now you look around and that is very clearly what is happening. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great pleasure to welcome William Henry to Exopolitics Today. I first heard of William's work in 2003, and it actually played a role in my exopolitics research at the day because he had some 
really original groundbreaking things to say about Iraq that no one else was saying. And when I looked into it, it was really amazing that it checked out with facts on the ground and it actually led to one of my most uh, popular exopolitics articles of all time. But we'll get into that. So first of all, I want to welcome you, uh, William, to the show. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So how did you get involved in this field of investigating myths and different cultures around the world? I, I really started uh, in college. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I moved to Nashville, where uh, I always had a deep interest in, in music. I'm a guitar player, and I was going to be an entertainment lawyer. And I went to a, a small Southern Baptist college here in Nashville that offered an entertainment music business program. It would get you ready to go to work on Music Row and and pursue a career in the music business. But the catch was because it was a Baptist college, you had to take Bible study classes. And I knew nothing about the Bible. I, I like to say growing up, the, the four apostles in our home were Waylon, Willie, Chris, and Johnny. And it was all about music and that kind of thing. And so uh, in 1982, when I uh, was had, uh, started at this school, I was in a uh, sociology class and the professor assigned us to review a book whose implications would impact Christianity. So off I went to the local bookstore and, and there was a brand new international bestseller called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, I'm sure some of the, your viewers are familiar with it. it. It of course is the book that inspired Dan Brown to write the Da Vinci Code. And our, the assignment was to write a three page review of, of this book that, that we had picked. Well, I got, I was instantly hooked on this idea. The, the, the premise of Holy Blood, Holy Grail said that the crucifixion was a hoax. Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. They had children. There were lost secrets in this tiny hilltop village in Southern France called Rennes-le-Chateau. The Catholic church had wiped out a million Cathars to try to protect the secrets and, and keep the original version of Christianity from being known. And I wanted to know what it was all about. What, what was that original version of the story that has been largely kept secret? And that kind of launched me into this whole area of ancient mysteries and interest in the angels, fallen angels, human transformation into celestial beings, portals, gateways, uh, that, that, that really, uh, that book really was the power pack that, that launched me onto this quest. Well, that uh, conflict between the fallen angels that's described in the book of Genesis, actually, the book of Enoch goes into great detail about that. And so did you at any point realize or come to the conclusion that this was not just a war between these spiritual entities, that the book of Enoch was actually describing a real-life physical war between off-world civilizations? Yeah, it, it took a while. I uh, later uh, into the 90s and, and 2000s started getting interested in the Essenes. They're, they're, they're thought to be the, the authors of the Book of Enoch. They, they made a superhero out of a figure that there's literally a one liner about him in the Book of Genesis. Enoch walked with God. That, that's all it said. And the, the Essenes took him and started writing all of these uh, superhero stories about him, about the fallen angels and putting a whole different spin on that story. And, and you're right. Uh, it did 
opened up for me this this concept that okay the the angels are are real and that, that was a, a huge part of the Essene revolution is that they claimed in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they were living with angels and these angels were teaching them how to transform into celestial beings and there's uh, a, a lot of controversy about whether humans can actually ascend on their own. Can can a human transform into an angel? Aren't angels made of a celestial substance and our bodies are made of earthly matter? Can, can earthly matter be transmuted into celestial matter? These are all bones of contention among people. But I, I, I always answered in the affirmative that, yeah, humans could transform into celestial beings. In fact, they, they called in a high celestial being, Yeshua, the Christ, who assisted them in, in showing the way to transmuting our body into a different form capable of, of traveling in the stars. So yeah, I was most, most definitely influenced by Enoch and still am influenced by Enoch, but especially the Essenes take on, on that figure. Yeah, I found that very fascinating uh, reading the book of Enoch. And I know there's kind of three versions or three different books now that are, that are floating yeah. around. And, and one, of the, one of the books actually talks about his transform transformation into this high, highly evolved being, Metatron, and, right. and it's this whole kind of transformation or this ascension. I mean, it sounds like it's a very important part of the, the book of Enoch and, and his life and his uh, teachings. But yet, of course, you know, as you said, you only get one line in the, in the Bible. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, along the way in my journey, like in the 90s, I had uh, zeroed in on uh, uh, a collection of, I call them power tools, uh, that are actually the identifiers of the Messiah in, in Jewish legend. It includes the Ark of the Covenant, a flask of manna or star food, angel food, and a jar of anointing oil, as well as the, the, the rod or staff of, of Aaron. And I, I really started to lock on to that anointing oil idea because that also appeared in, in the book of Enoch. We're, we're told that that the Archangel Michael came and took Enoch to the third heaven, anointed his body with an oil that dissolved it into light so that now Enoch's body was the same as the angels. And I wondered, and I still am on this, on this track, what, what kind of an oil uh, could dissolve the human body into light so now that the, 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 the person has a body that's identical to the angels? That is fascinating. Uh, so those oils, I mean, do you think that might be similar to the elixirs uh, that alchemists talk about? I mean, there's you know, lots of talk about how uh, alchemy has been preserved and continues to flourish. There are a few people that uh, practice it today and, and uh, their kind of elixirs are really yeah. very powerful transformative tools. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, th that is what the alchemists are, are seeking. And ultimately, of course, it's all about utilizing the body as a vessel, as the, the alchemist flask or, or glass vessel that can produce these oils. And so a huge part of my, my personal quest and professional quest is understanding the, the mystical anatomy of the human body, how it's originally was designed to function as a sort of a stairway to heaven from the soul's perspective and how ultimately we can kickstart this process within us to produce this transmutation or metamorphosis. 
And, and of course, the really kind of intriguing aspect of that, you know, given my interest in exopolitics, is that extraterrestrials have been playing a critical role in that for as far back as we know in history, that they have been teaching and giving these tools for transforming and elevating consciousness. Absolutely, Michael. I totally, totally agree with that. In fact, you know, back in the about 1991, I think, is when I first read Zachariah Sitchin's book. And of course, he he took us down this path that the Anunnaki were a slave race or slave masters and slaving the human race in this quest for gold and all of this. But when you really read, read those stories, there was always an element of, of, of transformation in the stories. There was always a temple they were setting up that would teach humans how to how to transform into into Anunnaki, you know. In fact, the, the first story of the, when they created the, the first being, the prototype human, if you will, Adapa, uh, the first thing they did was took him on the path of heaven. And so that that was a real red flag for me. It's that thinking, well, if Sitchin's saying that they, they, the Anunnaki created humans as slaves, why did the first thing that happened, why was it that they took uh, Adapa on the path to heaven? It, it suggested to me that there was something else going on in these stories and that it really was more about uh, the Anunnaki intervening and assisting us in, in our transformation into celestial beings and connecting us with these, these uh, other celestials. Okay, so Sitchin maybe oversimplified or maybe he was uh, misled? No, you know, he, he just, he himself said, I don't know why they're here. Um, maybe they're here for gold. Uh, most people, I, I call this the gospel of Zechariah Sitchin because a lot of people who especially quote the Sitchin says the Anunnaki are slave masters never read Sitchin. And, and when you actually read his books, he says, I don't know why they came here. Um, and he started to hypothesize, maybe they came for gold. Yeah, maybe they did. And maybe they needed gold to repair their decaying atmosphere. The Sumerian texts never say anything like that, but Sitchin hypothesized it and became kind of uh, the gospel for, for a lot of people. And we've had to sort of unwind um, that hypothesis a little bit because it produces a victim mentality. And that became sort of a, a, a dark side of, of what was happening as we started to try to understand this in the 90s and the 2000s. So when you go through the ancient literature, uh, the biblical literature, Sumerian literature, you come across these terms, uh, the Anunnaki, the Nephilim, uh, the Archons and the Watchers. You know, what, what are the differences between those different groups? Well, in definitions, the Anunnaki came from the, the throne of Anu, uh, which is thought to be in a celestial realm, uh, probably not a planet called Nibiru that that, that was another one of Sitchin's sort of reinterpretations. Um, so the Anunnaki are, are the, the angels that, that are the fallen angels of the book of Genesis. They come from the throne of Anu. They are, while they're on earth, they are, they, they are the ones that, that produce this hybrid race that the book of Genesis identifies as the Nephilim, the offspring of the fallen angels and, and human beings. And then later, uh, a, you get a term applied to them, especially by the Essenes, referring to them as the Watcher Angels. And then much later than that, 400 years after the Essenes, is when the Gnostics come in and they start speaking of a, of a group of beings called 
archons that are subservient to Sophia. She's a sort of a fallen goddess who's uh, without the permission of, of the divine being or the divine ones has created a, a fallen world that the archons are now the rulers over. And that, that is uh, the Gnostic explanation for our the, this mimic or fake reality that, that they claim that we live in. Mm -hmm. One of the things that intrigues me about the biblical tradition, the Book of Enoch, is it talks about these pre-flood patriarchs, uh, Enoch, Methuselah, Jared, mm -hmm. and it describes the great flood. Now, mm -hmm. as far as I understand, the, the great flood took place around 9,600 BC, which is when the Younger Dryas period ended and there was an actual rapid heating of the, of the earth or at least the, the northern hemisphere. And you, you had a lot of things going underwater, including Atlantis that Plato wrote about. So I'm just wondering if you agree or maybe can um, uh, elaborate on whether or not this pre-flood civilization that's talked about in the Bible actually equates with the time of Atlantis. I, I think it does. Um, I'm, I'm really, you know, when you're talking about Plato's story, of course, he, this is an allegory. He's not writing it as history, he, but he is describing uh, a culture, a civilization that existed 9,000 years before his time. And of course, Plato lived around 600 BC. So that perfectly aligns with that younger Dryas window or the end of the younger Dryas window. Um, but what I'm intrigued about with, the, with Plato's story is that his insistence on, again, this being an allegory and this is a morality tale and this idea that the, the Atlanteans were hybrid beings. They were offspring of the gods and the gods have bequeathed to them a divine element. And Plato had warned or, or said that the Atlanteans were warned that as long as they lived in alignment in a righteous manner with that divine element, everything was going to be fine. But of course, the morality tale is, is that we humanity drifted away from that uh, righteousness and purity. And the, the solution was ultimately the, the cataclysm uh, that, that destroyed Atlantis. So I, I look at that and I think, okay, that, that's very interesting because there is a, there's a race of beings that are described by the Gnostics. The Essenes allude to them. They're referred to as perfect light humans. And they are thought to have existed in the time before the flood. And I believe that Enoch was one of the perfect light humans. So was Noah. Noah was perfect in his generation. In other words, uh, it, the, the Noah story in some people's opinion, corresponds with that Atlantean type of civilization, certainly pre-flood. And, and there was a judgment. And Noah and his family were, were the ones that were judged, judged as perfect in their generation, which means that they were judged to be righteous and, and upright people. But in my vernacular, and in my, the, the lens through which, which I look at this, and I, I use that word perfect as sort of a golden needle to weave my way through various traditions. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, when you talk about perfect light beings or perfect light humans, you're talking about humans who have dissolved their body, their flesh and blood body into what the Tibetans call the rainbow light body or the great perfection. And it, it made me start to think, well, maybe, maybe Noah and Enoch when, when Enoch, uh, his body was dissolved into uh, that of an angel, he was described as rainbow colored. 
just like what we find with the Tibetan rainbow light body. So I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that what if, or putting as a hypothesis, what if this pre-flood race really were able to attain what we refer to as the rainbow light body or their mystic light body? And this is in part what was lost after the cataclysm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense um, because I know the, the Book of Enoch, um, as, as, as well as what you were describing from uh, Plato's uh, recounting of the end of Atlantis. It's all about this uh, advanced civilization that abused technology that, that went in the wrong direction, but also there were elements of that that maintained those righteous ways and were in alignment with God, with the Supreme Being, and that they were helped. So it makes sense that this actually was the way in which that whole kind of uh, flood played out that uh, certain portions of humanity, probably the majority got wiped out because they were kind of decadent, whereas there was a significant minority that that did have higher evolution or that had learned the lessons they needed to learn from the celestials. So and, and that's such an important point, Michael, because when if you follow the Christian path and they where we we talk about the second coming, there's a reference in, in Christian prophecy that when the second coming happens, it will be as in the days of Noah. And so what that's saying is that it's, it's like we're going to experience a repeat of what happened in the days of Noah and maybe even a repeat in what happened with the Atlantean civilization, as if this is sort of a recurring phenomenon that, that humanity has these instructors that come in. Some people get it. Most probably don't get it, but there, there is a, a judgment day that takes place. And it's, it's nothing personal. It, it's just all about how do you uh, maintain a, a, a higher standard for the entire human race? And maybe that's what we're experiencing now. It sure feels like a, a lot of judgment day stuff going on in our world. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel as though... You know, we are in the midst of, the, of those judgment days and uh, a lot of people are having to uproot themselves because of uh, the things that are happening around them. I mean, we, we actually had to leave Hawaii uh, to move to Tennessee uh, because Tennessee um, maintains freedom, but Hawaii is no, was no longer free. It was, uh, it was uh, terrible what was going on there with the policies against unvaccinated people, and it, it continues today. It, uh, really it amazing. Yeah, it was shocking to me, Michael, to living in Nashville, uh, having experienced what, what happened during the, the COVID pandemic from our perspective, and then to go to places like Denver, Colorado, or Los Angeles, and, and see what was going on out there. It's like, what? How, how are you allowing this to, to happen mm -hmm. to you? You, you, all of your freedoms, all of your rights have just been completely obliterated. And they were living in such incredible fear and terror that I, it was absolutely shocking. Again, coming from Nashville, where we approach this with kind of some normal sensibilities and precautions. And then you go to these places where they were just completely being oppressed by this. It was absolutely shocking. Yeah, so there is a, definitely a separation happening now and people are going to places that are more in alignment with their values. You know, if you, and this gets into what we're going to be talking about later, you know, transhumanism, the, the kind of movement towards that. But I think that this, uh, the whole jab thing is a key part of that process of transforming 
those that are willing to stay in the big cities that are destined to become smart cities controlled by 5G networks and people being constantly up, upgraded in terms of you know, the, the next jab and that getting, their software is going to be upgraded and, they, and become like our robots, transhumanists. So, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And I, you know, um, I, I wrote a book called Cloak of the Illuminati in the year 2002. And that was my first kind of foray into the whole transhuman area. And I, I remember back then, I was uh, especially fired up. My my real interest in in, in this light body phenomena, um, and again with the Anunnaki, as I started to see that they the, the the Anunnaki were called the shining ones, and one reason why was because they possessed a transmittable cloak or garment. Sitchin didn't know about this. This word was the, uh, that refers to this garment was not really dug up by uh, Sumerian scholars until the early two thousands. And the word uh, is malamu. It's a Sumerian word that means radiance, luminosity, shining, and supernatural power. And it's a term that the Sumerians applied to the Anunnaki to a cloak or garment that they wore, the malamu, that gave them, the, made, gave them their, their shining luminosity. And the thing was, is that this, this cloak or garment could be transmitted to a human. So an Anunnaki could provide this cloak or garment to a human and a human that could become an Anunnaki, a shining one with luminosity, radiance, and, and superpowers like the, the Anunnaki, which is why they were called the mighty ones. And I, as I'm tracking this, I'm, I'm noticing there's a whole uh, continuous line of deities and even humans that acquired this, this garment. Enoch is, is one, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Mary Magdalene, they all have references to acquiring this miracle garment. And the first part of 2002, as I'm finishing this book and, and talking about this garment, here comes this Department of Commerce report, U.S. Department of Commerce. They, they took the, uh, all the, the big tech companies that were in existence back then. It was Apple, Microsoft, uh, people like that, and, and said, some of you are working with bits or computer science. Some of you are working with atoms or nanotechnology. Some of you are working with neurons or neuroscience. And some of you are working with genes or genetics. And what we want to do is we want to merge all four of those technologies into a single seamless technology aimed at the human skin in order to introduce a new golden age and also a, a new type of human being. And when I was talking about that back in 2002, I'd be like out coast to coast or something. And people would literally write to me saying, you're nuts. This will never happen. You will never see humans merge with technology. You know, David Icke is talking about people putting chips in their brain. You're talking about them replacing our whole skin and breaking the skin barrier and turning us into robots. And I said, yeah, that, that's the plan. That, and they plan to do this by 2035. And I remember back in 2002, hey, at least we got another 33 years or so before this is going to happen. But, but now you look around and that is very clearly what is happening. And so this 
this transhuman movement that we've referred to a couple of times has clearly been planned. It's driven by the military. And its ultimate objective is a, a new type of a human being where uh, the powers that be believe they'll be able to make trillions of dollars by turning us literally into, into robots or machines. And that's where your work, I think, comes in uh, so importantly because it does come up with a solution. I mean, uh, the, the transhumanist movement is, is picking up and people are just stumbling into it you know, make, based on choices that they're making now without realising that they are preparing their body uh, to be kind of like merged with technology is that, you know, you do have a solution to that. So, you know, you, you mentioned... Uh, transhumanism in 2002 and uh, i think you have your it's your latest book the singularity is near so i guess that's yeah. what you're describing yes yeah so i i first started again on the the transhuman trail in 2002 and then pursued other interests but always my my central focus is human transformation can humans turn and transform into angels and and that that whole process and in the activation of the light body and then uh I guess it was after 2008, 2009, I had worked on, uh, I, I was a, an advisor to Robert Downey Jr. on the movie Iron Man. And I realized then that, uh-oh, uh, there's, they're gonna start really pushing this now. And, and Iron Man was gonna be a vehicle for that. Robert was concerned about that and he knew I had a, a different viewpoint on it and wanted to try and, as he said, William Henry eyes Tony Stark a little bit to sort to show especially kids that there's another path to power. You don't have to put some kind of nano elixir in your bloodstream or pack yourself into some stupid tin can nano suit to be a powerful being. Uh, you can activate latent capabilities from within you. And I, I realized that that was going to be like the huge split right there that is as Iron Man really exploded um, suddenly people are like going, yeah, that's, I want to be like Iron Man. And, uh, so back then in, uh, the, around 2011, 2010, 2011, I started really talking more about the, the, the solution to transhumanism. And then in 2012, I, I wrote the Singularity is near, which was a play on Ray Kurzweil's book, the singularity is near, which is when the AI becomes smarter than all of us combined. And of course, Google and and the people that he works for uh, are actively embracing that idea as the, the future for humanity. But I said, my, my whole mantra back then was, don't let them break the skin barrier under any circumstances, unless it's life or death, or unless it's, it's temporary. Because it was, it was very clear that, that uh, the objective was to get under our skin and to start injecting various substances, nanoparticles, elixirs, to then ultimately uh, transform us from the inside out into uh, these cyborgs or, or robotic beings. So, you know, this is a really major movement, transhumanism, and it, it really is picking up steam. Now, I mean, there are people that think it's a good thing. I know uh, when we have uh, Elon Musk saying that, well, AI is the next threat and that merging with machines is the best way humans can 
deal with the threat posed by AI. So, you know, do you, do you think that's genuine or do you think that's just kind of like just the Trojan horse for introducing transhumanism? I, I have very serious concerns about, about AI and I like to pay attention to Elon Musk because again, he is, he's certainly a mercurial person and a, and a weather vane in a way. And I take him at face value when he says AI is demonic, and I believe it is is demonic. It's an alien intelligence, and it's beyond human control. And I'm 99.999% sure we don't want to merge with AI in this technology. And I, I hold the door open 0.0001% based on the Catholic Church's views about aliens. I, I apply their logic about aliens to to AI. And that logic is, well, if aliens exist and they land at the Vatican, we'll baptize them, one. And two, uh, more importantly, uh, the, the Vatican would, had put out some statements saying that, well, maybe, maybe these aliens won't look like us. And who are we to judge God's creativity? So that, that's the logic right there. Who am I to judge God's creativity? Maybe God always intended for us to perfect the human body by merging with AI. Maybe God sent Steve Jobs as his Messiah and we just didn't realize it at the time. And he's leading the way into our merger with AI. Maybe Elon Musk is some kind of messianic figure that's gonna lead us into some AI promised land. I don't think so because I think if God wanted me to be a machine in, a, in an AI sense or a transhuman sense, he would have made me that way. And that what really is happening here is that we're ultimately challenging God's authority. And this is a, this is a battle that's been going on for eons. Transhumanism is not new. It, it, it originated with Christianity and has its roots in Christianity. And it's ultimately going to be Christianity that has to provide the, 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 the solution, I feel, to, to transhumanism. And the reason I say it has its roots in, in Christianity is because it's particularly in the Christian religion where there's this ethos to return to our original state of being. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they were in a place of pure light and pure love. They probably weren't even on earth. Some perspectives say Eden was in the third heaven. So it's not on earth. But in this original Edenic state, humans were living an enlightened state, an awakened state of pure light and pure love. And in the esoteric version of the story, we did not have physical flesh and blood bodies. We had energetic bodies of pure light and pure love. After the fall, when we were evicted from Eden, the book of Genesis says God did two things. One, he built a gate at the east of Eden, put a flashing flaming sword in the middle of it and forbade us to return. And secondly, God then made coats of skin for humans. Your, your Bible thumpers will say, well, yeah, that those coats of skin must have been some kind of animal skin, you know, maybe cow skin or lamb skin or something like that. But the esoteric understanding of that is that the skins that were made for us are these bodies, which means we don't belong in these bodies. And the original premise of Christianity has always been, how do we get back through that gate of the gods? How do we get back through the gate of Eden, the star gate of Eden? 
This flesh and blood body is not going through that gate. A transformation is going to have to be undergone before we go through that gate. And so ever since that fall, especially in Christianity, esoteric-minded, spiritual-minded people have been looking for ways to return to that original state of being. And the, the way they would originally do that is through prayer, meditation, chanting, an ascetic lifestyle, that sort of thing. But then what happened historically, and this happened around the 10th century, is there was an invention that changed everything. And that invention was a plow that could be pulled by multiple oxen. What that did is it reduced the time that humans had to spend out in the fields trying to feed themselves so that they could then have more spare time to get back to their original project, which was the perfection of their immortal light body and their ability to get back through that gate. Well, well that invention of that plow was viewed as a gift from God. God wanted us to have more time to focus on our spiritual lives and develop our perfect light body, so he sent the plow. And that developed this ethos, especially within Christianity, that technology is a gift from God. This is when you started to see images of God holding a compass in his hand. That's a, a, a symbol of a tool. And that, that other tools started to follow. Eyeglasses emerged. The church went ballistic with the invention of eyeglasses. What, what do you mean you're going to augment your God-given body by putting on eyeglasses. If, if God wanted you to see the thinking what went, he would have given you a decent set of eyes. So who are you to challenge God's authority? And so this is the, the beginning really of transhumanism, of augmenting the body towards perfection. But then what happened is, is that the, the technologists started to go really crazy with it and thinking, well, this perfection means we're going we're gonna to have increased intelligence. We're going to have increased longevity. And, and with it came the control. And always, and this gets back to the battle we, I referenced earlier, especially originating with the archons, is that there is this class of beings, call them demons, whatever you like, that want to mock and mimic God to create a synthetic version of what we can do organically as a way of essentially just saying, you know, we, we, you know, we're challenging God's authority. And this is one of the biggest problems with transhumanism is that these guys literally are playing God and they're, they've taken it upon themselves to believe that they can perfect the human race by merging us with, with AI. That's fascinating. So, the, the AI transhumanist movement is, is really trying to take this kind of human body and take it to the next level of, of merging it with machines, with technology, whereas your work is to get people to connect to the, the rainbow light body, which is uh, actually a kind of like a spiritual um, body that is, that is not dependent at all on this physical body. And, and that's the path to transcendence. So is that really, as we kind of like move into the, into the um, later into this decade and the 2030s, is, is that going to really emerge as being the, like the two main ways that people are going to move forward collectively? Either they're going to follow this kind of transhumanist curve and you know, do everything that's expected of them and become kind of like like these roboticized iron men with enhanced abilities, but really controlled 
by major corporations or going down this path of becoming uh, humans that are emancipated in terms of being fully connected with their rainbow light body, which I presume can kind of leave the, the, the skin suit and just go off and do whatever it needs to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the choice, as I see it, is you're either going to follow the path of the archons or the path of the angels. And the angels, when you read the descriptions of them, have rainbow light bodies, at least in the Jewish mystical tradition and the Christian mystical tradition. And that's why I align them with, with the Tibetan rainbow light body. And the idea is, is that our body already has built within it the, the technology for, for transmutation. And in my view, anything that we introduce to the body from the outside via Silicon Valley type technology is, is not going to enhance our ability to attain our organic rainbow light body. It's going to prevent us from doing that. And, and ultimately, I think that is the purpose from an archonic perspective of this technology. Because when, like, look at the metaverse now. I mean, the, the basic idea of ascension is that there is a, a pure land, there's a, a kingdom of heaven, there's a a realm of heaven, a higher frequency realm, call it 5D, whatever you wanna call it, that exists outside of this reality. But with the archons driving transhumanism, their quest has always been to mock and mimic. And so what we see now is the, the creation of a fake reality, the metaverse, that is being presented as an, an ascended form or, or an ascended world. It, it's gonna be better than this physical reality that you and I exist in right now in every way, shape, and form. And the argument that is, is already being put on the table and is being presented is that why would you want to stay in one of these crappy old organic human bodies when you can become a perfected being and live as an avatar online in this new perfect world? And in my view, that that black box is, is nothing but a, a soul trap. And that, that is the, the choice that all of us are making right now. And what I try to encourage people to see is that they've already created this digital avatar version of themselves. They're already living it ever since the, from the very first moment that you turned on your first computer or your first smartphone, you started building the cells of this digital version of yourself and what you haven't done yet but which uh, Mark Zuckerberg and others would, would really like for you to do is to turn yourself into a cartoon and exist exclusively in the metaverse. That, that is their version of ascension, whether they, whether they consciously realize it or not, that is what they are selling. They are selling an ascension into the black box and uh, immortality, digital immortality, and uh, the, the promise of a, a life lived in a more perfect world online. And of course, uh, as many people discuss, the, the, the trade-off here and the reason why people would want to do that is not just so they can inhabit this perfect online world, but in order to save this world, the, uh, the material world, from climate change. Well, I know this movie that came out a couple of years ago, Ready Player One, kind of like depicted the, the future when virtually all of society is uh, living in this virtual reality and there's just you know, very little a percent of the population that is actually doing productive work and building things, construction and so forth. But it's really, yeah. uh, and, and the, the, the physical bodies are living in these kind of like really 
abysmal conditions, living conditions, but it's it's like you was just describing that online you can achieve this kind of synthetic transcendence where you're a superhero doing incredible things. Right, exactly. And, and that that is appealing to a generation that really doesn't know anything anything better, really. But spiritual-minded people have to be aware that everything that they're doing online has a spiritual consequence. And we haven't really made that connection yet. And, and uh, I think that is really vital right now for people to see that, that, and I ask people this, you know, a lot of people are interested in ascension. They, they believe in this idea of transcendence. And I'll just say, look, you know, you, you've got a retirement plan, you got a healthcare plan, you got vacation plans. What's your ascension plan? Where are you going? after this incarnation and, and how are you gonna get there? Because what we see on the other side is that companies like Microsoft and Facebook, Meta, they have a definite plan for you to, to follow where you will drop your physical body and rapture yourself into that online world and, and, and live forever. They have a definite course set out for you and, and we're being programmed to, to follow that course right now. And the idea that I try to, again, ask people to, to pay more attention to is that you, you already have this digital self that exists online that will live on long after your physical body has turned to dust. And once it seems to me people start to realize that, they, they start to make that connection and realize exactly how dangerous uh, all of this online activity actually is from a spiritual perspective because people are, are, are less and less identifying with their organic self and most certainly their, their transcendent spiritual self and are more and more identifying with their online self. What, how much time does the average person spend online right now? Is it eight hours a day? Uh, and the, the next step is, is not to look at the glass, but actually to cross over the glass and, and inhabit that world more and more full time. And, and what I'm saying is that there is a version of yourself that is already negotiating with governments, has signed contracts with these corporations. They, they own you. They absolutely own us and all of our data. And it's time for people to wake up and realize that just the literally the, the dark and demonic nature of what's actually happening right now. So in terms of ascension, I know you, you teach courses, you do tours. Mm -hmm. So what is that? I mean, how, how can people achieve this ascension process and, and not be sucked into this transhumanist online path that is being kind of like encouraged by the corporations? Well, my mantra has been that the antidote to artificial intelligence is to awaken our ascension intelligence to become more like the angels. And in my, my view, ascension is a quest for wholeness, for holiness, for perfection. And everyone is on a, at a different level on that quest. And, and the way I look at it, you know, to put it in the most simple fashion is that, and I go back, I, I actually derived this from the Epic of Gilgamesh. In, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, he, he is told by a Sumerian goddess, Inanna, that, that he's two-thirds divine and one-third human. And if he wants to make it through the gate of the gods, 
Gilgamesh is going to have to clean up his act. He's going to have to become not two thirds divine, but but fully divine. And I from that I, I took this idea that well, what if archetypically speaking, all humans are basically two thirds divine and, and and one third human? Divinity, like wholeness, which I, again I, I say is the quest for is the ultimate objective of the quest for ascension. Divinity and, and wholeness are both symbolized by a circle, and a circle is 360 degrees. And so if Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine, that means that he's 240 out of 360. And so the way I encourage people to think about this is that basically, let's say we're all starting out at 240, and routinely on a day-to-day -day basis, we do things mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally that are reflective of our belief that we're at 240. When we're at say 270 or 280 on that scale, we're gonna be doing different things mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And the things that you'll be doing, Michael, at 280 are different from what I'll be doing at 280. But the idea is, is that you'll be doing different things, different actions when you're at that higher frequency. And the key, to ascension, in my view, is to begin to, to figure out what will you be doing when you're at that higher frequency, and then start doing as many of those things as possible. And then this is how we, we raise our frequency, a, a term that we, we speak a lot about in, in ascension circles. So the, the key to it is, is actions. And it's in my view, if a person is let's say in the 300s somewhere on this scale, let's say they're at 330, chances are they're not spending eight hours a day online. Chances are they're not eating garbage food. Chances are they're, they're in an elevated state of love and compassion and their actions are more reflective of that. And that, that to me is, are the, is, is the key to, to our ascension. It's determining what, what actions, what new things will you be doing at those higher frequencies and then starting to do those things in order to raise yourself to that frequency. In terms of uh, this space age that we're now entering, uh, we are moving into an era where there's going to be mass transit of people into space. And Maybe. I guess... And I, and I guess this is going to be something that the transhumanist movement is is going to kind of like merge with because it's going to be argued that, well, if, if you want to travel into space and do things out there, then you know, this merging with technologies is going to be critical for that. But, of course, there's yep. this kind of spiritual tradition uh, where they talk about people being able to develop these Merkaba space-time Vehicles. I mean, uh, Drumville of Melchizedek wrote The Flower of Life, I think in the 80s, and yeah. he began talking about that. So is that real? I mean, is there a personal space-time device, a Merkaba that we all have, and it's all about achieving the right frequency and ascension, and then we can activate that and actually become space travelers without the use of technology? Absolutely. Um, the Apostle Paul said, said it best, and I think it's a cosmic law. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Our body is not designed to live in space. And NASA has known this since 1962. That's when they started looking into pharmaceuticals and other ways to enhance the human body so it could survive in space. And this is when the term cyborg was, was first coined. And so I, 
that means that there's only two ways that we can go into space. If our flesh and blood body is not going into space, then how are we going to go into space? Well, to me, the only two choices are where they're going to go is robots, transhuman beings, or as light beings. And I think you can, you can look for evidence for both, especially in the ancient world, because that, that cosmic law would apply to everybody coming here. Anunnaki, for example, uh, you look at some of the depictions of, of the Anunnaki, you, you look, read their stories, look at some of the Egyptian depictions of Osiris and Ptah, they look like robots. You, you could make that argument that they, they were technological beings that could then phase into uh, some other form. But I, I also think that the Anunnaki were energetic light beings who could then phase into physicality and then phase back out of physicality into, into their light body phase. And I, I think that's how um, many of these beings are, are traveling the stars. And this is something we're confronting right now. So human beings will not colonize Mars, period. Transhuman beings will or could, but, but not human beings. It's, it's the end of the road for, for human beings as we begin to migrate into space. So the extraterrestrials have just been down this path just a lot earlier than us, but essentially it all boils down to one of those three paths. Either it's going to be robots going into space, transhumanists going into space, or people in light, light bodies going into space. And certainly that kind of explains a lot of the, the positive extraterrestrials that come here. They seem to be beings that are kind of like light beings in the fourth, fifth density, and, and they kind of yeah. step down to interact with us. And, right. and, and that's so it seems to be consistent with what a lot of people have been saying. Absolutely. And, and instead of step down, I just use the word phase. They, they can mm -hmm. phase out of their, their light body into a physical flesh and blood body and then activate its latent capabilities and phase the flesh and blood body back into the, to the light body and beam themselves throughout the cosmos. Well, one of the things that I'm very interested in now, I mean, I'm doing regular webinars and my next webinar is going to be focusing on time travel. And one of the things that I, I find fascinating is that you know, the, time travel seems to be kind of similar to space technologies or space travel in terms of you can either have a hard technology and kind of humans developing some kind of uh, symbiosis with machines to be able to travel through time, or again, you can travel through time using this kind of light body or this Merkaba vehicle. So, so time travel, do, have you come across that in your research? And, and that is actually something that can be achieved through this kind of uh, organic or this rainbow light body? Yeah, I think so, Michael. I mean, that because I've I, I liken time travel to, to travel through stargates. And um, I, it, going back to your earlier comments, I, I really went down that, that path full force uh, back late 90s and early 2000s and started seeing, again, from reading Sitchin, that um, in many of the depictions of the Anunnaki, I didn't see spaceships in the depictions. I saw portals and gateways and, I, and accompanying those portals and gateways were stories about human transformation. And so I started realizing, well, there's, some, there's something else going on here. And that uh, you, you mentioned my, my work in Iraq and, and it's perhaps is a good segue to, to talk about that as an example of how my thinking developed in that area. Um, 
I, I became very intrigued by uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, 1991, of course, where we got the first Gulf War going on and uh, everybody's watching CNN. And all of a sudden, here's this commentator that says, oh, you know, Saddam Hussein believes he's the reincarnated biblical king Nebuchadnezzar. I'm like, what? And I didn't really know who Nebuchadnezzar was, but I started reading up on him and started following Saddam Hussein and profiling him throughout the 90s and his quest to rebuild Babylon. He had spent $500 million rebuilding Babylon um, in order to create sort of a Disneyland for the Anunnaki. And of course, the Bible prophecy says that uh, in order when, when the Lord returns, uh, Babylon will be rebuilt so that it can be destroyed. And it appeared like almost like they were reading the book of Revelation, like a cookbook or something during the, those years in the 90s. But Saddam just really, really intrigued me. And especially uh, Nebuchadnezzar intrigued me. And there was a, a wonderful story, uh, I mean, just a mind blowing story, actually, where after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the Temple of Solomon and perhaps brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Babylon. He also brought 10,000 of the, the elite of, of the Jewish population from Jerusalem to Babylon, including the wise men from the Temple of Solomon. Three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in particular, were among those that, that were brought to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had this gleaming golden image of the beast that he had acquired but he couldn't make it work. But he knew that the wise men from the Temple of Solomon could. And so what happens in the story is he makes a wager with them that if they can enter this fiery furnace and return, that he would convert to, to their religion. Well, in the story, this is what was so intriguing to me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before going into this fiery furnace, put on their coat, their hat, and their other garments. They enter into the fiery furnace, and when they come back out, they're not alone. They have one like the Son of God, or depending on which version of the translation of the Bible you read, the actual Son of God in tow with them. Well, who's this? And what is this story really, really all about? I read it as a, as a Stargate story that they had opened this fiery furnace, the coat, hat, and the other garments were, those are the garments of the Anunnaki. That's, that's the Malamu that they were putting on, this, this light body garment. This is a, they are, they're phasing into uh, a light body capable of entering into this other dimensional realm. Go, they go and get the son of God. They bring him back out. And the Bible ends the story right there. But in the Babylonian tradition, this God, uh, whose name is Nebo, brings with him profound cosmic knowledge and they build pyramids for him, ziggurats for him. And it, it becomes this whole uh, training center for humans then to be able to enter into these, these higher dimensional spaces. And, and that, that is, a, in, in my opinion, a, a, a partly a time travel story, but most certainly a, a Stargate story. Well, I remember reading your material back in 2003 where you talked about the stargates that were discovered in Iraq and mm -hmm. that this was the real reason for the invasion of Iraq. And I, I was really amazed because I just hadn't considered that at the time. But I, I remember doing research and finding uh, additional information that just kind of like corroborated what you were saying, that in fact, this was the real reason for the invasion. It had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. It was more weapons of mass destruction distraction, if you like, that uh, uh, 
Saddam Hussein really believed that he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar and that he was going to reveal the stargates, this ancient extraterrestrial history to the world. And so, well, you know, the Americans and the secret societies wanted to take him out. Absolutely. And again, this wasn't something I've just made up. I was profiling him through the 90s and especially following him through the art newspapers because your, your art news and the people in the art world would watch the UN weapons inspectors go into Iraq and come back out with their pockets loaded full of ancient Sumerian artifacts and were selling them on the black market. And the, the art world was calling, uh, calling foul on that. And as I continued to follow that trail, I realized what Saddam was actually doing and that it became a real easy, um, uh, an easy forecast for me to say, look, if, uh, and I did this uh, on coast to coast in, in 2000, I said, if Bush and, and Cheney are elected, we'll be in Iraq within six months. I was wrong. It took us a few years to get there, but I knew we were going. And this is the reason why, because you can't have Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> running loose on our planet. Imagine, just imagine what Saddam might have known if he could remember his incarnation as this biblical king. He certainly honored it and made it ab- absolutely clear that he believed he was this figure. And if you extrapolate that even just a little bit to think Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings of the ancient world, he knew what the Ark of the Covenant was, where it was. This is all wrapped up in biblical prophecy and end time prophecy. And I mean, we're talking about a major ancient figure on the world stage getting ready to perhaps fulfill some kind of a messianic prophecy. And this was not going to happen from a Jewish Christian or even an Islamic perspective. So with that Iraq invasion, well, I mean, you have the the first Persian Gulf War with uh, George Bush Singh and then the second one in 2003 with uh, George W. Bush. I mean, do you think it was just them and the neocons or do you think there was a secret society behind them? One of the things that I've just recently found was that uh, Freemasons play a key role whenever any new technology is found in these uh, archaeological digs, especially advanced technologies that were used by these previous civilizations, the the Freemasons move in and, and take control. And any government that disagrees with that is pretty much undermined and removed, which is exactly what happened to Saddam Hussein. And so do you know anything about that? I mean, do you know of any, rather than the neocons and the Bushes being behind it, do you think there was a secret society? Do you know who that might have been? No, I don't. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's obviously some invisible order that is maybe hundreds, if not thousands of years in advance of us that are that are behind a lot of this or, or pulling the strings, but no, I don't know anything specifically about that. I know that there's kind of like this um, uh, material called the Wingmakers. I don't know if you've come across that. And mm-hmm. that talks about a, an artifact, extraterrestrial artifact found around, I think, 800 AD that presumably is from the from the future, future humans. Some people think that those future humans are, are kind of like, well, time travelers, obviously. So, so yeah. could these future humans be 
time time travelers here to kind of like teach us because the the artifacts found at Shackle Canyon supposedly were stimulating this kind of ascension process seemed to be stimulating this organic evolution of consciousness um, and that and that that the wingmakers material when it was initially released that it, around 2002 the website was taken over and went in a new direction talking about AI and extraterrestrial threats to kind of take us away from the original idea of an organic human consciousness that could be stimulated to go down this other path. Yeah, I'm I'm not that familiar with the with the wingmakers material, but there there does seem to be a a technology, a lost technology that that's at the center of all of this. Uh, it's it is re, one term for it. Um, you, you used uh, the Merkaba throne. Drumbelow's Merkaba is Drumbelow's Merkaba. Okay, it's not the same as the Merkaba of Essene or Jewish mysticism. Uh, he kind of, I, I, he just, it's, it's his own thing, okay? But when you look into the Jewish and, and early Christian idea of the Merkaba, uh, it goes back to the Sumerians and most certainly, of course, the Anunnaki. And it is the preoccupation of all the ancient mystics. And there is at the center of it a throne, when that's what the Merkaba means. It's a celestial chariot or celestial throne. And there is a kind of a, to use the word, the, a game of thrones where this, this throne of God is, has been brought to earth by celestial beings that's periodically assembled and then disassembled. And this is the, the focus of many of these end time prophecies from the Jewish, Christian and Islamic perspective. And this, I think, is in part is what Saddam understood and, and what he was after uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has referred to it when he was uh, president of Iran. Um, it, it is discussed in the in the end time prophecy circles, and I think Edgar Mitchell was also very interested in this. Well, as well, he thought of it as an extraterrestrial technology brought to Earth by angels from a contiguous universe. I'm I'm positive that that is the the technology that Edgar Mitchell was seeking as well. And it's most certainly a, a free energy device that has connections with ascension, with stargates, with human transformation. And it, it is the basis for, again, uh, the, the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic prophecies about what is going to happen in our time. I don't know if you've come across the Transylvania book series that Peter Moon has edited, but it's all about the discovery of a Hall of Records in the Bujir Mountains of Romania, and that that's connected by a tunnel to Iraq. And it was discovered around the same time, 2003, 2004. And it was very interesting that at that that same time, apparently you have a Hall of Records found in Iraq and a Hall of Records found in Romania that are connected. Now, the, the, the Freemasons apparently approached the Romanian government and said, hey, uh, you know, you, you have this technology, but we want to have access. So um, if I guess said, well, if you're going to kind of like continue to, to function, um, we want you to join NATO for your protection. So that's what they did. They joined NATO the very next year. And of course, Iraq, Saddam Hussein you know, told them to get, get lost. And so then you have Iraq being invaded. So I thought that's interesting. You have these halls of records found 
the repositories of ancient technologies in Iraq and Romania, the Romanian government decides to cooperate with the secret government, the Freemasons and the and the uh, whoever else is behind that. Whereas Saddam said, uh, Hussein said no. Yeah, huh. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, and I remember also, Michael. Um, I mean, I it's almost gets to the point where you need to have a a reincarnation scorecard or something because Saddam then came out and said that George W. Bush was the reincarnation of Hulagu, who is the grandson of Genghis Khan. And you just start to think, well, okay, reincarnation is a really important part of this. And these guys are obviously carrying knowledge from incarnation to incarnation, at least theoretically. And I, I, I think that's a really fascinating thing that's happening in our world right now. And uh, we mentioned, for example, Mark Zuckerberg earlier, uh, who, who was kind of intrigued to read the story as his wife's account of their honeymoon. They went to Rome for their honeymoon, she and Mark Zuckerberg. And she said, there was me, there was Mark, and there was Caesar. Because Mark is obsessed with Julius Caesar to the point where he thinks he's Caesar. And that, that explains his haircut. And just think about it. If, I mean, if it's possible that Saddam was Nebuchadnezzar and George W. Bush was the grandson of Genghis Khan, is like Mark Zuckerberg, like a returned Caesar? I mean, it explains a lot. And it really makes you wonder what exactly is going on in our world and who, and who really are some of these people we're dealing with. Who's Elon Musk, for example? Fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us actually doing this work are probably reincarnations of these uh, historic figures that have been fighting the, the, the good fight for freedom uh, for children a long, of light, long time. Just the of darkness. Yeah. yeah, we keep lining up. It's the same old thing. And, and that's that should give you a sense of uh, thrill, honor, uh, mission, and understanding as well. And I, I take it, I take it deadly seriously. I mean, I, I really do feel like the, the book of Revelations, chapter 20 through 22, are probably the best navigational tool we have right now. They're, it's the only book that I know of that's really giving us a forecast or an understanding of, of what is going on and what is to come, and also the good news that the children of light are going to be victorious. One of the things that I've been focusing on the last uh, year is the arrival of groups of extraterrestrials, advanced extraterrestrials. Some people call them the guardians, some call them the cedars. And apparently when they arrived, these space arcs began to activate on the earth and elsewhere in our solar system. And these are ancient artifacts built by these groups many, many thousands of years ago that are kind of buried. And apparently one of these things was used, was described in the Noah's story or the epic of Gilgamesh that in fact it wasn't a wooden boat that carried uh, two of each kind of animal and a bunch of people to safety that it was an actual space ark so do, do you do you think Noah's ark was an actual wooden boat or do you think it could have been a space ark yeah you know, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a wooden boat um, I'm just following the line right now as I said a moment ago there was that judgment in Noah's time and Noah was found to be perfect in his generation. And then it says, Noah walked with God. 
well, wait a minute. Enoch walked with God, and he had turned his, he attained his perfect light body through the help of the archangel Michael. What if Noah uh, attained his perfect light body, and that is how he was able to cross over the flood? That, that's not to say there couldn't have been some vehicle in between there, definitely not a wooden boat, but but I really am focused on on this idea that well, what if what if Noah, what if we haven't really re looked deeply enough into the story of Noah to see that he also attained his his rainbow light body, and that is how he crossed over the flood, and maybe that's why the rainbow was sent as a symbol of the of God's covenant that He would never destroy the the, the world again by flood. Just just thinking out loud here um, that possibility because. I, the reason I like that that line of thinking, Michael, is because that I can do something about that today. I, I I mean, I could go looking for a space ark. I could go out to Skinwalker Ranch and pick up a shovel and start digging for something buried underneath there because there's definitely something there. Um, and it, who knows? It could be a ship of some kind. But I know that I also can work on perfecting myself, becoming more whole, behaving more in a holy and more righteous fashion. I can, I can do that now. And I can have an impact on my personal well-being by doing that, as well as be impactful in an immediate and positive way upon everyone around me. And I, I really do feel that if we're going to move through this period we're really going to have to bump up our holiness and and uh, and righteousness factor within each of us. And love and compassion, it, it, it's become such a, almost like it's so trite to say it, but that, that really is our way forward. We have to become more like these high celestial beings, these righteous beings, in order to move through what we're, the, the, the scenario that we're all walking through right now. I know on your website, uh, you discuss different uh, ways that people can achieve uh, ascension and you have courses and you have tours. So can mm -hmm. you kind of like explain to people you know, what they would need to do if they were interested in beginning seriously this path of uh, ascension? Thank you. Yeah, um, I have courses available on, on my website, which is williamhenry.net. Um, I, in fact, I've got a, a weekend webinar, or excuse me, a weekend event coming up in Nashville in October called Halo 3.0, where uh, I'll actually, in this uh, iteration of this series, be taking a, a really deep dive into the Apocryphon of John. This, the secret gospel or secret book of John is the one that, from the Gnostic perspective, laid out the whole story of the Archons and was the forerunner or the book that laid down the, the groundwork for a lot of our understanding of the simulation theory, simulated reality, and how the archons would create a simulated reality in order to mimic or mock God. Um, that, so that's gonna be, uh, if, if that is a subject that people are interested in, they won't wanna miss my, my weekend event in October. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, it's very tempting. I think I might uh, even make the trip over to Nashville, seeing as I live now in East Tennessee, because that looked fascinating. Yeah. And Nashville is uh, really an amazing city. So we haven't traveled there yet, but my wife and I do plan to do that. Great. Well, good for you. Yeah. Well, and again, welcome to Tennessee. It's a it's a, such a lovely place. It's got a, 
a very rich history of uh, ancient history that most people aren't aware of. Ancient Nashville was an ascension center. There's over 300,000 bodies that are interred underneath uh, Nashville that, that were brought here from all over North America. It was a, a city of the dead. It's like Abydos in Egypt or Saqqara in Egypt. It was a sacred burial place because of, of its role in the in the very, very ancient world. And all of the artifacts that uh, have been found here in Nashville from the what are called the Woodlands people uh, tell of this, this path of souls and the soul's journey into the stars of star beings coming down and assisting us in, in transformation. And it's what that means is that, that modern Nashville is overlaid or superimposed on a really rich history that is really profound. And it, it's actually, it's knowledge that, that we need to bring forward today. So it doesn't surprise me that you uh, found your way to Tennessee. Yeah, well, I think uh, you're doing very important work there and I fully support what you're trying to do and introduce people to Ascension, to the rainbow light body and to kind of like present a, a different path, an alternative to this kind of like powerful movement towards transhumanism. So that's very important work that you're doing. So where, where do people go to kind of find out about all of this? The, uh, to my website, williamhenry.net. And I've got uh, a number of articles there on the subject, especially of AI and, and transhumanism that uh, I've been writing over the past 10 years or so. Um, so I invite you to, to visit me there at williamhenry.net. Well, I want to thank you, William, for being on the show, and I look forward to seeing you soon in Nashville. It's my pleasure, Michael. And again, welcome to, to Tennessee, and I look forward to seeing you here soon. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.